It's good to be with you. I'm excited about today as we've been going through this Live by the Spirit series. And we've been talking about, because we say all the time, the goal is to look more like Jesus. It's to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ, to be sanctified. And this interesting thing about that is that for a lot of us, we can say it until we're blue in the face, but it doesn't actually make sense. So we're teaching on it. We're talking about what does it look like to grow in the fruit of the Spirit? Now, as we start this message, I have to kind of give a disclaimer. I've given disclaimers before, but it kind of goes with this. How we hear things is incredibly important. How we hear things is incredibly important. It's we get up, we teach the word of God. You can hear it. You can say amen. That's really good. You can take a note. But if you do nothing with it, you might not have heard it. So I want to encourage us as we're engaging with God's word to listen to what God has to say, to to wrestle with what these words actually say, who they were being said to, and what they mean. See, in 2018, we don't have an information problem. We have a comprehension problem. As today, as we're going through these different attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to tackle one totally out of order. We're going to tackle kindness today. We're going to spend time in what does it look like to be kind biblically? Now, kindness, if it's just being nice or pleasant, kindness doesn't require the Holy Spirit. But biblical kindness, it is about a disposition, not necessarily your actions. To be biblically kind is a disposition, not necessarily your actions. And actions that come out of a disposition to be kind reflect Christ. Know what the difference between a response and a reaction is? About two seconds. Because too often something will happen, we'll be quick to respond or react. We'll be quick to just say something without prayer or even leaning into what the Lord would have us say. But with that, kindness also plays out in ways that you wouldn't expect. Biblical kindness is supernatural. It's supernatural. It is, it is not just a kindness that is being pleasant or nice Because if all you have to do is just give a smile to someone who maybe you don't like, can we just be honest, there are people in this world we don't like? If it's just giving a smile to them, that doesn't get to the heart. That doesn't require the Holy Spirit. But if you can be kind out of God's work, if you can go through heartache and go through difficulties and go through things like that and still be kind, still be gentle, still be gracious to others, that requires and is evidence of the Holy Spirit residing in you. So today, as we continue the series on the fruit of the Spirit and what it looks like to grow more into the likeness of Jesus, I want to encourage you to understand that all of these attributes of the fruit of the Spirit are not something we, try, we can try harder to acquire or conjure up based on our own willpower. The fruit of the Spirit is supernatural, and it is worked through. We are growing in if we have genuinely repented and trusted Jesus Christ, and we follow him. You've heard us say it before, but those who have repented, they have had their hearts broken over their sin. They don't just think that they've made a mistake. They know that they are broken, and they know the only one that can solve their problem is Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. It's not self-help. It's not more toys or things. It's not prosperity, but it is a deep conviction and need for a Savior and a Lord, and his name is Jesus. So turn with me. You were probably in Romans. If you read that, you probably kept your finger there. We're going to get there later. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 43. This is in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's talked about the Beatitudes, the attitudes that we be, those who are following Jesus. And now he's going to raise the bar even more. 
says in Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Levitical law and pointing out how the Pharisees had heard it incorrectly, how the Pharisees had interpreted the text incorrectly. They had heard it wrong. So Jesus is gonna clear it up with the authority of the Father. Verse 44, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ah, Jesus, you're raising the bar again. This isn't easy, Lord. You want us to pray for those who persecute us? And I'm not talking defriending you on Facebook, y'all. I'm talking about like they dislike the fact that you follow Jesus. And yet Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. But here's the thing, Jesus, if you tell me to pray for those who persecute me, they don't deserve my prayer. Oh, that's probably the point. Because when we give grace to others, it's giving to them what they do not deserve. It's easy to love those who love you, isn't it? You guys can talk back. We're pseudo-Baptist. Okay. But it is impossible to love those who hate you without the Spirit of God inside of you. It truly is. Verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, that you are owned by someone. He, God the Father, causes his Son to rise, not the Son, but the Son to rise, S-U-N, on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, he says. It would be easy for us to misunderstand what he's saying here and start to think that we have to do something in order to be saved. But you need to hear from me. You do nothing to be saved other than God through his work on the cross and resurrection, you being adopted into the kingdom and receiving this free gift. God is kind to those that are his children. But here's the thing I think we miss. God is also kind to those who are his enemies. One of the ways that we explain this is common grace. And and here's the thing. I just need to be real. If you're in this place and you have no relationship with God, if you have not repented, if you have not trusted Jesus, here's some bad news, but I got to talk about the bad news before I talk about the good news. If you have not trusted Jesus, you are an enemy of God's. That's some bad news. If you try to get your justification from anything but Christ's work, You are an enemy of God's. You are currently on the hook for your sin. Let's be that clear. And sin leads to death, and death will be what has to be paid for your sin. But God is gracious and he is kind to continue to give you a chance to receive his grace, to receive this free gift of Jesus Christ to trust him, to turn from your sin and to turn to a savior named Jesus. He is gracious to give you that opportunity. If you have breath in your lungs, you have been given grace. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, Jesus says, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Are not even the tax collectors, what I don't want you to hear is a tax collector is someone that works for the IRS. Like, that's not a bad job. A tax collector, in our context, is a, essentially an ISIS sympathizer. The tax collectors would take money for the Roman Empire, and they would take that money, and they'd take a little extra for themselves, and they would get rich off of their own people. 
and they would fund the Roman Empire so the Roman Empire could take over Jerusalem and throughout the entire world. So aren't the tax collectors even being loving to those who love them, he says? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Jesus then is calling out this society in which these listening Jews lived in. They understood that tax collectors were the lowest of the low. They were traitors. And Jesus points out that even they could love others that loved them. But do you show contempt for people that aren't just like you? Do you show contempt for people that don't believe the same things that you believe? Let me, let me, let me give you some real talk, because, you know, I figure a sermon's the best place to confess my sin, right? I struggle with this. Here's what I struggle with. Um, my generation, we know them as haters. And I have some. I know you're shocked by that. And I have some. And usually when, when you're angry or mean or you don't, you don't love me, it's really hard for me to love you back. It's really hard for me to be kind to you. And you know how good God is? God keeps giving me opportunities to grow in this. Thanks, Jesus. And many times I've failed and I've had to repent. But then there are times where I see God's work throughout my life and I choose the spirit of God to work through me rather than my own flesh. And so this is something that I struggle with. And so if I struggle with this, chances are you struggle with this too. Verse 48, <laughs> be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. I'm out. Anybody else? And this verse has been used by fundamentalists for centuries to attempt to get people to never make a mistake. But see, Christ sets an unattainable standard. You guys know that, right? He who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. And this idea of being perfect like your heavenly father, this sums up what the law demanded. Though this standard is impossible to meet, God could not lower it without compromising his own perfect perfection. So he who is perfect could not set an imperfect standard of righteousness but here's the truth. And some of you, you've met with me and I've asked you this question, what is the gospel? Here's a really good hint. The marvelous truth of the gospel is that Christ has met the standard on our behalf. Hallelujah. So since you're not perfect, trust the one who is. That's a pretty good application, don't you think? That's pretty good. I would say amen to myself. That's good. So since you are not perfect, Trust the one who is, and through trusting, you then receive Jesus' perfect record gifted to you. But it's not a trusting and perfecting within your own strength. It's not about what you can do. It's about trusting and now living for Jesus because he bought your life at a price, and now you live for him, which reflects that you inherited grace in the first place. With that, those of us who have repented, those of us who have put their trust in Christ alone, they have a responsibility and calling to be ambassadors for the king. So I'm gonna ask you guys, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6. We're gonna walk through this really quick and then I'm gonna introduce someone to help us with this, this point. 2 Corinthians chapter six. Paul the apostle, it almost seems like he's throwing out his resume. He's explaining what he's experienced. And in 2 Corinthians chapter five, he talks a lot about what it means to be a minister of reconciliation. So here's, so for any follower of Jesus that's serious about ministry, 
Any follower of Jesus who's serious about the ministry of reconciliation, there is a guarantee, church, that you will be accepted by some and rejected by others. It's just a guarantee. And there will be amazing seasons of great excitement and effectiveness, and there will be dry and terrible seasons that will seem as if it's not worth it. But hear me, Jesus is worth it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we start in verse 3. Paul says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Followers of Jesus, I gotta be real, we don't take enough stake in how important it is for us to not cause others to stumble. With our words, I'm preaching to myself, and with our actions and our witness so our ministry will not be discredited. Verse four, rather, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses. Commend doesn't mean show off in an egotistical way. It means to make known that Paul specifically is the real deal based on the evidence of his track record through the endurance produced through great trouble and distresses and hardships that he endured. Verse five, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights, and hunger. These are not things any of us really want to incur to just prove a point. These are the types of trials that exist that prove that Paul believed what he read, that Paul believed what he saw and what he experienced. And these are struggles that few of us, let's just be real, are ever really gonna have to experience to the level of what Paul had to go through for the gospel's sake. But even though we probably won't experience these, we all need to be prepared for them. This isn't just for super Christians. This is what Christians may have to endure for the sake of the gospel. These are some of the extreme cases that Christians endure, but there are also things that Christians are being built up in as they go through these things like this, verse six, in purity, in understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. So we once again see that this kindness the Bible speaks about is not just a pleasantry, but a work of the Holy Spirit in us. So as we spoke last week about self-control, as we spoke about purity coming from the Spirit, not just from our own willpower, not from begrudging submission, but understanding with the hope to connect, influence, and persuade others with the gospel that we ought to be kind but biblical kindness only comes out of the Spirit doing the work. And so for the past year that, that myself and many, actually for those of you that were part of the little church plant that we had that came here, this is the one-year anniversary to that church plant coming over. And we started to, we, we had this little church plant that had been meeting for about six months and then God called us to COV and we came over here and we started to worship and we started to engage and over some time it became very clear that we were Church of the Valley. And in that time, there was a, there was a woman who uh, actually heard me teach at a different church, and she wasn't even at the church. She just saw it online. And then she came to the church plant, and then she came here in the morning, and she started to kind of see what God was doing. And God was very clearly calling her to come be a part of what's been happening. She's become one of my dearest friends. She's one of my favorite who, if I ever say something wrong, she'll call me on it. 
Like literally, she'll call me on it. And she's much taller than me. And so I wanna invite a dear friend and sister, Janet Haskell, up here to share a word with us. Um, do you have an icon or an image that you think of when I say kindness? If you were to put an emoji up there, a smiley face, that's a good one. <laughs> but I thought of maybe a teddy bear hugging a valentine. That was kind of kind. That was kind of, but you know, I couldn't find one. And I pulled up a couple of images of kindness. I thought were sweet. But do you notice they're of animals? They're not really kindness to other human beings. And then I realized there were maybe, there was one I saw of helping a little old woman down the stairs. Someone was lending her her arm. But it didn't really depict God's kindness. We can't, there's no icon that describes God's kindness. Kindness is a testimony to God's grace and what it produces in us. So I did find another list that talked about kindness. Somebody put together a segment of 100 random acts of kindness. These are fun. I actually have gone through a Starbucks and had the person in front of me pay for my coffee. They're long gone by the time I roll up to the window. It felt really good. It made me feel good, but it's still not the same kind of kindness that God's talking about. My sister... Um, picked up a book that had 365 ways to do random acts of kindness. One of them was to slip dollar bills to go to the dollar store. She took a handful of dollar bills, and then she would slip them in to the shelves and tuck them between the products, and then she left without buying anything. I thought she felt good about it. She had to share that with me. It's fun, but that's not the kind of kindness that God is talking about here. Um, what I relish about learning about kindness is how God is planning to use me and do his will in my life. And that kind of kindness may lead someone to an eternity with God. To be kind and steady and lovely are examples of who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit can use me, a person with my quirks, with my faults, with my drama, to further his purpose. Um, a new friend of mine whose initials are Mike Miller um, went to, had a, he and his wife Karen were a class, all the theology of work together. And he made a he told me a phrase, um, or was sharing a phrase that said, you know, people are forever. And that really resonated with me. Yes, we have eternal souls. And so why do we neglect give the best who God has created an eternal soul in. We are fallen creatures that no longer hold God as our first love. If we obeyed God, our first love would be him, and our second would be people, and we'd have time to be kind. But instead, we're selfish, self-serving, egotistical, narcissistic, self-loving, self-seeking, stingy. Think about it we actually might have time to be kind if our thoughts were off of ourselves. I have a friend who visited COV when Tim was telling his story about before Christ, and he had a former boss in an electronics store that showed grace to him. Now, she honestly retells this story of Tim's at a couple dinner parties I've been of hers, 
and with tears in her eyes, she relays Tim's story. That's a wow for me. She's not telling it to get people to come to COV. She's telling it because it helps her understand God's grace. And that kind of kindness, the kind of kindness that's not our natural human nature. To quote Tim, it's supernatural. Um, our stories are, as believers are filled with grace. So I want to share a little of who I am, or actually who I was. Um, I was an angry, damaged child of the 60s. I actually was a pretty much a little crybaby when I was a little girl. I was the youngest girl of five children, and I needed the attention. And acting out gave me a different kind of attention than being good, but it got me attention all the same. My birth order was sandwiched between two brothers, and to keep from getting pounded by my older one, I learned to play sports and hang with his friends. That was the alternate to my crybaby era. But to get along, I soon learned I had to fight and wrestle and play and play to win and not lose. And so hanging with the boys, I got tough. They toughened me. And through these interactions, I learned I was pretty gifted at eye-hand coordination, which led me into athletics. In junior high, I was a year-round athlete. I played volleyball and basketball, and I was in track and field, and I held the discus record for my high school. And then I went on to play intercollegiate um, volleyball for the university I attended. And for the next two de decades, I vacillated with volleyball as my passion and my addiction. But my point in telling you all that is that I'm tall and I'm strong and I was athletic and I could intimidate. And it was an adolescent that wanted the attention of her peers that learned me how to get it in a different way. So I became interested in gangs. And in the early years, I'd play chicken with cigarettes and knives um, on the school, school grounds. I know my teacher friends are probably cringing. Winning meant dis disabling your opponent. And not only worked at winning at sports, but I used it to pretend I was tough and make people think I was fearless. I was tall. I was six foot in the sixth grade. I had intimidating stature, and I knew it. And so I picked on girls. I made fun of them. I didn't really want to deal with the boys. I wanted their friendship and not their wrath. But I targeted girls, and many whom, if you know any adolescents that are growing into women, they can have pretty wicked tongue in that era of their life. And if you don't believe me, look at some ugly teens that turned into ugly women in Scripture. If you remember Herodias, she was to Herod. She asked for the plate of John the Baptist on a platter. You can read that in the Gospels. You think about Jezebel, and as she was to her husband Ahab, the king who abandoned his worship of Yahweh, and then she persecuted the prophets. You can read about that in 1 Kings. Both Ahab and Herod, I believe, were evil. And in both cases, I feel the women were even more wicked. I thought um, my parents were oblivious to my acting out. Um, I had picked fights with schoolmates and neighbor kids. 
but they had other things clouding their lives and had other siblings that were a little higher maintenance than I was. So I thought I was flying low under their radar by going to church and not rocking the boat at home. However, my my sarcastic tongue started getting me in trouble with my friend's parents, and they refused to let me come to their homes anymore because I was such a bad influence on their daughters. It was a pretty extreme opposite of being kind and benevolent to others. I never asked my mom her thoughts on my teen years before her death, but I believe she orchestrated a book to get into my hands about a man named Nicky Cruz. He was a gang leader in New York who was led to understand the love for him by a pastor named David Wilkerson. I read the book. I thought, wimpy, cop out. Come on, Nikki, you had all this power. You were cool. You didn't need to become a Jesus freak. I was thinking all this when I read the book. But you know, it planted a seed in my life because I'm telling you about it now. I had many influences of God's love in me that kept preparing me for a kindness that is much more powerful than harsh and stinging words or hateful behavior. I went to a Bible study my brother was all excited about. He was demonstrating a life-changing behavior that we were all watching. Within a year of attending this foundational Bible study, I became transformed. I got grounded in the Word. I was encouraged to read Scripture every day. I learned about the Holy Spirit and His amazing power. Lots of stories got for you there. And how God loved me back and transformed me and created in me a clean heart. I was now sweet and my eyes twinkled. Uh, A year after I had gone, that year I had gone back to school, I was showing kindness and authentic kindness to the very people that I'd threatened in the years before. Now that got me a whole lot of new attention. My classmates, my peers noticed and started coming to me, asked what had changed. Why was I so happy and nice all the time? What does that, how does that translate into today? Of course, I still have a craving for attention, but not on the stage. You can ask Aaron. I've asked to sing from the choir loft several times. But I have found getting attention in other ways. I like color. I like flair. So it's created, I've been able to create my own style. But you know what I really relished was the relationship in a a relationship where God loved me first and has allowed me to grow in his likeness instead of remaining my old ugly self. Was I the poster child for kindness, you ask? Was I the Anglo Mother Teresa? No, I believe the fruit of the Holy Spirit did exhibit in my life, and it flourished. In those first few years, I was walking in Christ-likeness. But did I clothe myself often in meditation of Scripture, in renewing my mind? Well, I thought I had it down. I thought I knew what it looked like to be kind, so I started to copy it. I didn't rely on the Holy Spirit anymore. I tried to fake the fruit, um, and it started to really stink. I didn't, when I didn't rely on the Holy Spirit and I tried to use those random acts of kindness, it didn't work. Spoiler alert, no pun, inten- or pun intended, it didn't work 
I, will be I was found out. The attitude and actions started to stink like rotting fruit. You cannot fake it till you make it. How do you demonstrate kindness and what it should look like? How do you keep dwelling in that place that is so fruitful? I'll show you. Uh, you want to show Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Since God chose you to be holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you and you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself in love, which binds us together in perfect harmony and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So the word put on in Greek actually means sink into clothing, to literally clothe oneself. We learned last week when Tim was talking about self-control that it's not natural for humanity to do these things in our own strength. Tim stated that it's also not willpower. We are taught and reminded to help this fruit develop. We need to renew our mind. This script, these scriptures are paramount. If we look at Romans 12, 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and by testing it, you may discern what is the will of God and what is, God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. To put on and clothe, you know, it's up to us what we put on. Do you wear the same jeans all week? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's out there because I used to do it. So. Do you find your wardrobe from a pile on the floor? Yeah, but spiritually, do you want that same thing spiritually? Do you want to do the same thing over and over and then expect different results? As I was growing in my faith in my 20s and 30s, I did not clothe myself for a period of time, and it was double hard. Here I had the comforter within me, and I didn't check in with him. He is so deep and still. There's so many riches. 40 years later... I can't believe I could say 40 years later. Uh, I, if I still don't renew my mind daily in scripture, I think unlovely thoughts. I get the most out of scripture when I ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to me before I start reading. Give me your will today, Father. So I want to leave you with two tips. Renewing of your mind is to be in scripture. If you don't know how to do this, Find a word or a topic or a passage or a theme or something that mystifies you or something that excites you. Look up the scriptures Tim gives you when you take notes. Share those, you know, those shared words or aha moment. Look those up in the Bible. Um, I asked the Lord 20 years ago to give me 90 minutes before I needed to start getting ready for work to wake me up so I could be in scripture. And he's been faithful. I have not used an alarm for over 25 years now. The second is to be in prayer. God says a lot about being in a relationship. 
I had a lot of scriptures I had to pare down <laughs> for this message. A relationship with God is awesome. And you can talk to him all the time. Talk to him when you're tempted to be unkind. Talk to him in those times when an unkind thought pops into your head. Also, pray for people the minute they come to mind. That's a very unselfish act. The ultimate kind act may be to intercede on someone's behalf. And you don't know what kind of kindness is leading them to repentance. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. <clears throat> Would you turn with me to Romans? See, I pushed it back down. Did you, could you turn with me to Romans chapter 2? She had us in Romans 12. And one of the words in Colossians 3, forgive those that offend you. Honestly, my reaction is no. I just want to be real about that. No. And yet that is part of the work that God is doing in us as we are willing to pursue him. And, and Janet, thank you so much for just pointing us towards, I mean, even so practical of, hey, 90 minutes before you got to be somewhere, just spending that time with the Lord. I always say this, hey, meet with the Spirit before you ask to meet with me. He likes meetings more than I do. But that's a really, like, important thing that we need to be meeting with the Spirit before we're making decisions, and we need to be looking to see what God says through his word. So Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and this book has been so fundamental. It, is, it has changed the scope of Christianity over the past many hundred years as different theologians would read it, meditate on it, and they'd be changed by these incredibly important words as Paul writes to the church in Rome while imprisoned. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, chapter 1, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Paul has just spent the first chapter of this letter letting mankind know that they are without excuse, because even creation points to a creator. And all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God and God's perfect law. All have committed cosmic treason against the master of the universe, and yet we look down on others because they sin differently than we do. And for the Jew who knew the law, who passed judgment on the pagan Gentile, he is saying that in particular, Jew, you ought to know because you've known this law longer than others. How often are we, even though it's not exactly the same thing, those of us who have grown up in the church, how often are we quick to pass judgment on those who didn't grow up in the church because we think they ought to know when really we ought to know because we've had the word preached to us? As always, I want to remind us that based on firsthand information, I am by far the biggest sinner in this room because I know my heart. I don't know yours, but you know your heart better than you know anyone else's. Verse two, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God isn't guessing when it comes to the fact that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And by nature, everything that God does is right. But we have the law, we have the truth, so we can see in contrast how unholy we are. God knows all things and he knows our shortcomings. He knows where we fall short and yet he gives us grace and we get grace given to us not because we earned it, but because we couldn't. Are you guys picking up what I'm saying? 
You could not earn grace. It was not something you did to get it. It was something God gave you because you couldn't earn it. Verse three, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? He continues to ask these rhetorical questions, but you will be judged by God based on what you know. That's what chapter one is all about. And those who hear the word of God constantly and do nothing with it and disobey it or ignore it, here's what happens. Your heart's hardened and you will be judged more harshly. So let me give you a good reason to not go to church. How often do you get to hear that in church? You ready? Here's a really good reason not to go to church. We are gonna teach the Bible. We're gonna teach what it says, what it means, no matter how unpopular it is in contrast to culture. We're gonna teach what it says. So because of that, here's your two choices. Your hearts will harden or you will grow spiritually. That doesn't mean you grow spiritually and your hearts harden. That's not what I meant. Your hearts will harden or you will grow spiritually. Those are your only two choices. But be careful, especially those who have been here a while while hearing the truth. There is a higher expectation from God that you do things that you ought to do rather than do nothing or just do bad things. There is an expectation that you would do the things you ought to do. Verse four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say his wrath is intended to lead you to repentance. Now there's wrath. Let me get real. God hates sin. And if you are in him, you should hate your own sin. But it is his kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance. So do you show contempt for God's kindness? Do you look down upon his kindness? Do you take his grace for granted? Do you think because you're forgiven anyway, you can do whatever you wanna do? I hope you don't miss this. What you apply is what you've really learned. What you apply is what you really have learned. We are not in the information uh, regurgitation business as Christians. We are in the, we are gonna do what God says. We are in the obedience business when it comes to our heavenly father. So what you apply is what you've really learned. We say this all the time. Knowledge is information experience. I've just totally stolen Dallas Willard's quote and pretend it's mine. But knowledge is information experienced. So what do you really know? What do you really do? What do you really apply? Do you know Jesus? Prove it. Do you listen and do what he says? His kindness is intended to lead you to, to repentance. His kindness, not just to you, but to others who clearly do not deserve his kindness, just like you. So you wanna know God? You wanna know if you are a follower of Christ? You wanna know if you are a child of God's? There's no more important question I could ask you. Have you repented? I'm not saying have you attended church? I'm not saying can you quote words in Hebrew? Have you repented? Have you 
Change direction from the sin that God has given you the opportunity to see because he's exposed it through the word of God. Have you turned from your sin? Not perfectly, but have you pursued the perfect one? Or do you think that your devotion in being a nice person or attending church or treating a gift that you were given as your justification because you use it is what saves you? Worship team, why don't you come on up? If we were sitting in a Pete's and we were talking, truly the most important question I could ask is, have you repented? Have you changed direction? Are you willing to follow the Lord? Too many of us think that repentance is just a feeling or it's this long, ongoing thing. And yes, we constantly do repent, but have you repented and placed your trust in Jesus? Because if you haven't, the fruit of the Spirit is just going to be tried to be willed through your effort. It is only through those who have trusted Christ that the fruit of the Spirit takes shape. We went through the book of Ephesians last year, and in Ephesians chapter 2, there are these 10 verses of just gospeliciousness, if that's a word. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Ruth, I should have had you read that. This is happier. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let me break it down. If you are in Christ, when you fail, you know who God sees? His son. When you do things right, you know who God sees? His son. Because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, but it is through this that his incomparable riches of grace have been expressed through what? Through kindness. In her memoir about the journey from being a committed lesbian to a committed Christian, Rosaria Butterfield says that as a non-Christian, her impression of evangelical Christians was that they were poor thinkers, judgmental, scornful, and afraid of diversity. After publishing a critique of an evangelical Christian group in her local newspaper, she received an enormous volume of polarized responses. Placing an empty box in each corner of her desk, she sorted the hate mail into one and fan mail into another. Then she received a two-page response from a local pastor. It was a kind and inquiring letter. It had warmth and civility to it. In addition to its probing questions, she couldn't figure out which box to put the letter in. So it sat on her desk for seven days. She writes, it was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received. Its tone demonstrated that the writer was not against me. Eventually, she contacted the pastor and became friends with him and his wife, and they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. Their friendship was one of the most important parts of my journey to faith. I want you to miss this church that what you do matters. And when we have a biblical kindness that comes out of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, God gets to show his incomparable riches of his grace.